What did you think of the last Star Wars movie? They haven't been my cup of tea, let's say. Jordan Peterson in Iceland. Mr. Reagan. So, for the most part, I don't usually do commentary on Jordan Peterson's lectures or speeches. They're pretty self-explanatory. There's not usually much for me to add. But I watched this one and I thought, there's some interesting new stuff here. It's worth reacting to. So, for the most part, this lecture was a series of summarizations of the various points that he makes in his book. And I'm going to do a full review of his book in another video. So, I'm not going to go over that stuff. But I do want to touch on some of the stuff that's newer that he talks about in this video. Stuff that I haven't seen him talk about before. And it's kind of a fun lecture. It's, it's kind of a fun Q&A at the end. And in general, I think it's a video well worth watching, and the link's going to be in my description, so go ahead and click on that and watch the full video. Firstly, I would like to say that this moderator is a pretty funny guy. Most of the time that you see these speaking engagements, the moderator is super dry and horrible. In fact, it's incredibly rare that I see any moderator worth listening to at all, but this guy's actually quite funny. So I'm going to serve as a surrogate Dave Rubin here, a slightly less gay... Dave Rubin. <laughs> ah, less gay Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin doesn't seem that gay, so I don't even know. I'm going to read you a few things that are wrong about him. He's a, he's a far-right guy. Hitler. He wants to force young women into marriage. He's the stupid people's smart person. That's actually not that bad about him, but... The reason they say that, they want you to become afraid to admit that you like him or go to his talks. Well-groomed alt-right. At least he's well-groomed. A messiah-come-surrogate dad for gormless dimwits. So that's another one directed at you. Um, I, I, I'm one of you as well because I don't know what gormless means. So, but I, I suspect that having a gorm is preferable. So just <laughs> stay away from this guy, Tim Witts. Um, Jordan Peterson has nothing of value to say. He's a patriarchal pseudoscientist. He encourages young men to see themselves as victims. He's a professor of piffle. He seems like a terrible therapist. He's a bad political and social thinker. An angry white guy. And the line between Peterson's authoritarianism and Richard Spencer's paleo-Nazism is a blurry one. <laughs> He's a Jewish shill. And if you're going to be a shill, you, you, you want to be a Jewish shill. Um, and he's a fascist my mysticist. And this is just a small sample of what has been going on. And it's all wrong. It's all wrong. And that tells you something. A new one every day to misinform people about that man. And you can demonstrate it. It's demonstrably false. Everything. And th there are some people that see him as a risk to their agenda and their world view for some reason. But he's a, he's a reasonable, uh, balanced, moderate, truthful man. And I've never seen such a campaign against any thinker ever in the world. Uh, not even someone that is untruthful or as dis despicable as they make him sound like. Um, so this tells you something. This is the reason I was reading this. This tells you something about the importance of his message. I mean, that's brilliant. I love that. So these are my thoughts on the lecture. So... 
You don't deliver a talk to an audience. First of all, it's not a talk. Second, you don't deliver it. Third, it isn't an audience. Like, all of that's wrong. You talk to individuals in the audience, one at a time, and they're representative of the whole, but you're not talking to the audience. If you're afraid of public speaking, it's because you're talking to the audience. It's like, forget about that. You just talk to people. You know how to do that. And then, you're not delivering a talk. Because then it's a canned product. You might as well just hand people pieces of paper that they could read. It's more efficient. Why not do that? What you're doing, if you address people properly, is that you involve them in the process of furthering exploration of important concepts. And you think, well, how can you do that? Because they're sitting there passively. It's like, well, you're not passive. You're not verbal, but <clears throat> you're not passive. Like, I listen. If you're rustling around, then I'm not balancing chaos and order properly. You're not gripped. I watch people one by one, and I see. Sometimes they're shaking their head like this. Sometimes they're nodding. Sometimes they look confused. If, if people look confused, I think, well, I haven't got that right. I have to be watching people and seeing that they're understanding. They're following along. And that indication that they're following along helps me figure out if I'm in the right place. And that's what you're doing if you engage the audience properly, is you shouldn't be talking about things you don't know enough about to talk about. You should know like 10 times as much about the topic than you're going to talk about in the talk. I mean, you're, you're supposed to be the authority, so you need to know these things. And then knowing these things, you want to stretch them further. This is a theater, a lecture theater. Theater is drama, delivering a talk. No, there's no drama in that. A tape recorder can do that. The drama is to engage with the ideas actively in real time and to discover with the audience what the consequence is. How to give a speech. <laughs> this is brilliant advice. I mean, um, if you're somebody who ha is in any way interested in any kind of public speaking, this is phenomenal advice. I actually have a book on this. It's called How to Develop Self-Confidence and Influence People Through Public Speaking. And it was written in 1926 by Dale Carnegie, same guy who wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, the book has a lot of great tips. Like, for instance, if you're anxious before an important interaction, a job interview or a date or a speech or something, hold your breath for like a minute or something, right? Just what ends up happening is when you release, all these endorphins are released. At least I think that's what happens. And uh, and you do feel de-stressed for like, I don't know, for like, uh, for like the next 10, 20 minutes or something. So yeah, right before you go into a major meeting, hold your breath. And I, I use this all the time. So if you're interested in public speaking or whatever, go ahead and get that book or really anything written by Dale Carnegie will help you. That's what makes a novel great, for example. The reason a Dostoevsky novel is great is because Dostoevsky did not know where he was going when he started. He had problems, you know, like crime and punishment is a great example. He wanted to explore the relationship between crime and punishment. He didn't think, well, I'm a postmodern neo-Marxist and I have a solution to the problem of crime and punishment and I'm going to write a novel describing what the right solution is. He thought, here's a problem, man. This is a major problem. I'm going to divide myself into ten characters, and I'm going to have a war, and I'm going to see what prevails. And he takes you along on that voyage, and it's, it's, that's what makes Dostoevsky different than Ayn Rand, for example. Because Ayn Rand already knew who the good guys and the bad guys were. And maybe she was right, and maybe she wasn't. It doesn't matter. What matters is that what she did wasn't literature. It was just sophisticated propaganda. 
you know, like it, it taps into literature upon occasion. But, but she knew where she was going, whereas Dostoevsky, he discovered it along the way. And so he takes you along on the journey. And that's, any great artist does that, takes you along on the journey. That's why it's so revivifying to encounter anything that's genuinely artistic. It's because you're along for the conflict between chaos and order. I love that Jordan Peterson loves Dostoevsky. Uh, my mother brought me this uh, big grocery bag full of old books once from this garage sale when I was like in high school or whatever. And among the books was um, a book of short stories by Dostoevsky. And after getting um, just a bit into reading the first story, I think it was White Knights, Dostoevsky immediately became one of my favorite authors. The rawness of the characters it was something that was totally new to me. And if you want to read some true masterpieces of literature, read the short stories of Dostoevsky. You should also buy my book of short stories, which I think is probably not as good as Dostoevsky's, but definitely also excellent. I have yet to complete reading Crime and Punishment. I should actually get that. But I recently bought a new copy, hardback, from like the 50s or something. I, I, like, I like old books, you know. This one is from 1956. So I'm going to start... I'm going to start reading that again after I finish 1984, which is what I'm reading currently. Is it possible that that journey might lead to a bad place in some cases? You've spoken of Hitler when he was speaking to audiences, and he was listening to the audiences, and, that, and he started to find what really engaged them and made them... Um, yeah, excited yeah, about well what he was saying. Yeah. Is it possible oh, that sure. you might get it wrong? Can effective public speaking go wrong? What about Hitler? You know what? I'm going to respond to this before I play Jordan Peterson's response. Because Jordan Peterson is far more generous than I am. I like this moderator, but this is a stupid question. Okay, I, I really don't like it when people concern themselves too strictly with the potential misuse of powerful tools. Anytime you develop a powerful tool, there will be those who attempt to use that tool for selfish or nefarious ends. People often do this with data. They claim that censoring information from the public is necessary because somebody might use it inappropriately. This is the prime argument against publication of analysis of IQ testing. This argument is also used by climate scientists to filter the data they release to the public, as happened with the East Anglia researchers. And it's always the Nazis. You know, the, the Nazis are always the great example of the evil use of valuable tools. Yeah, we get it. There are bad people in the world who do bad things. But every time a powerful technology is developed or another kind of powerful tool is revealed to the world, we do not need to ask the question, what if Hitler got a hold of this? So, okay, so what? So now we're going to classify IQ test data, climate science data, and effective public speaking techniques as dangerous tools that could be used by the next Adolf Hitler? Give me a break. What are we going to say next? Well, we need to dispense capitalism because it makes wealthy people and that makes powerful people and some of those people might be bad. We can't have capitalism because Hitler. Everything good is bad because Hitler. Maybe let's just appreciate good things and reserve our anxiety for when bad things look like they might actually happen. I like this moderator, but this is a stupid question. What were Hitler's motivations? Here's the psychoanalytic answer. If you cannot understand the motivations, look at the consequences and infer the motivation. What's the consequence? Hitler blows his brains out in a bunker under Berlin when Europe is in fi on fire. What was the motivation? A suicidal apocalypse. That's the motivation. 
How do you generate a suicidal apocalypse? You aim at it. How do you get the crowd to go along? You speak in that manner and you watch for the emotional response. And when you get the anger that you're after, you facilitate it. And you let your Im imagination dwell on that. And you become a master of that. And that's what Hitler did. And it wasn't like the Germans weren't angry. And they had their reasons. World War I was brutal. They lost. The Versailles Treaty was a catastrophe. In the 1920s, every decent, hard-working German lost all of their savings in hyperinflation. And the entire country was threatened by a radical leftist revolution. It was rough, and people were not happy. And many of them had been terribly brutalized by World War I. So there was no shortage of anger to capitalize on. And Hitler was just the guy, annoyed as he was, for example, that he was rejected from art school three times, despite having a fair bit of artistic talent. He had his reasons for resentment and, and, and hatred, and that's just a tiny part of it. Yes, these things can go terribly wrong. This is actually a great starter for learning about the circumstances that culminated in the rise of the Nazis, the Holocaust, and World War II. It depends, at least in part, on what you're aiming at. People ask me what I'm aiming at, and I would say, I hope that what I'm aiming at is to tell people stories and provide them with clinical information that's derived from the best literature and science that I know so that they can be fortified in their ability to contend with tragedy and malevolence. When I wrote my first book, which was Maps of Meaning, the audio version of which is out next week, by the way, I think it'll be easier to understand because it's read and the intonation is all there. I concluded after studying the psychological dynamics of the Cold War that the only proper medication to tyrannical collectivism was the sovereignty of the individual and that as a consequence the sovereign individual needed to be strengthened that that was the path forward with least harm and most potential good. And I think that's what I'm doing. My evidence for that is that I've been doing it for 30 years. I taught courses based on that at Harvard and at the University of Toronto consistently. The lectures were made into a television program in Toronto that was popular. The lectures became explosively popular online. Everybody can see what I'm saying, as far as I can tell. The overwhelming evidence, as far as I can tell, is that it's having a positive consequence. So, and I'm hoping, and I have people watching me and criticizing me, like friends of mine and my family, trying to make sure that this all works. And so, hopefully, I'm not doing something that isn't good. We'll see. But yes. Um. I don't think we have to worry too much about Jordan Peterson's public speaking going terribly wrong. I think we're on fairly safe footing here. The last, last question, um, what did you think of the last Star Wars movie? I've gone, I don't know if I saw the last Star Wars movie, but I saw one of the last, I've probably seen three of the last <coughs> five Star Wars movies, I would say. And I thought they were all the same movie as the first Star Wars movie. So they haven't been my cup of tea, let's say. You know, the superhero movies, the Star Wars movies, the Star Trek movies, the fantastic success that Marvel in particular has had with their superhero pantheon. 
I think it all speaks to the unquenchable power of mythology and its proclivity to manifest itself in a multitude of forms and, and, and to be inter eternally compelling to people. And so generally that seems to be a really good thing to me. So, I mean, their Harry Potter series, I think, is a better example than the Star Wars series because I think that the Star Wars series is a bit too consciously contrived, whereas the Harry Potter series is genuinely, to, to my way of thinking anyways, is a genuine intuitive production. Um, and Rowling got her mythology. She's so good at that, I just can't believe it. It's just absolutely unbelievable like teenage wizards and child wizards in magical castle threatened by giant snakes and portrayed the battle between good and evil on a landscape of chaos and order and, you know, sold, I don't know, what's her empire worth? It's in the tens of billions of dollars, certainly. She got all these kids to read 600-page books. They produced all these movies that were fantastically expensive. Everybody read them and went and watched them. It's like, and what do you see there? It's a dying and resurrecting hero fights a satanic figure and attains final victory through death and resurrection. It's like, you know, and it wasn't contrived. That came out of the story. The mythology seeps in no matter what. And it's, I think, and this is something I learned from Jung, is that it's time for us to understand it. It's, we can't just live by it unconsciously anymore. We, we have to understand it as well as living by it. And that's the task of the 21st century. That's what it looks like to me. So... If we understand it, then maybe we can fortify ourselves against collectivist ideology, for example. I'm hoping, because that's a bad pathway. I love that he says that he thinks Star Wars is too consciously contrived. Uh, I, think that's, I think that's absolutely spot on. You know, uh, I often talk about my writing partner, Kurt. Um, Kurt is actually starting a channel of his own in which he takes films that he thinks were miscast and he recasts them... Uh, with other celebrities and actors that he thinks you know would would have been better in the roles, and I think this is kind of a fun idea for a channel. So hopefully he'll get the first video of that up uh, fairly soon. Now here's what I think about the new Star Wars movies. Uh, I think Jordan Peterson's absolutely right. They are consciously contrived. Not only are these films consciously contrived, but they're consciously contrived in a very SJW way. So, for instance, in Rogue One, they have these tanks rolling into this um, desert village, right? It looks like an, an Afghani village or an Iraqi village. And, uh, and then they have these um, Imperial troopers uh, walking alongside with these gu big guns and stuff. And it seriously looks like American troops going through a town in Iraq or Afghanistan. And then you have these rebel fighters who are dressed exactly like Iraqi or Afghani fighters. And they're supposed to be like the good guys, right? And, you know, the Empire's obviously supposed to be the bad guys. And I just thought it was astonishing that you get this strong anti-American imagery in a film that is, that is produced by Disney. Like, how far have we gone here? And, and there's, this, there's this producer, Kathleen Kennedy, and, and she's pretty much um, credited exclusively for all the SJW stuff that you see in the new Star Wars movies. You know, they, they're killing off all the white male characters from the early movies. They're trying to replace all the heroes that have existed with women or, you know, people of other ethnicities, you know, black, Asian, Hispanic, whatever. And they seem to be trying to extract any straight white male out of the hero side altogether. You even had tweets by the writers of Rogue One that were like explicitly expressing their desire to turn the Star Wars movies into this battle between ethnic minorities and women 
and straight white men, right? This is their actual agenda in in contriving the Star Wars movies into, you know, SJW propaganda. And it's like, okay, fine. You want to influence America through your your fiction. Fine. But make your own movie for that, right? We've already got movies that are, you know, apolitical in America that are considered sort of legendary you know, that are these legendary cinematic narratives that we grew up with are part of our childhood, and you're, in a way, you're stealing that from us, right? If you're a producer of these films, and you are, you know, you're extracting all of the meaning from the original movies and injecting all of your own political agendas, you're hijacking that franchise. You're stealing something from the culture. And I think that that's, and I think that that's truly criminal. I think that that's a horribly unethical thing to do. But, you know, these Hollywood people, they've got these massive egos. They think they're right about everything and whatever. So all in all, I really thoroughly enjoyed this, um, this uh, lecture. I, I, I really didn't like that one question that the moderator asked about, you know, being an effective public speaker going wrong. But otherwise, I thought he did a great job. He was funny. He was, he was fair. You know, if I ever become a successful speaker, I want to go to Iceland. I want to, you know, those people seem great. Sorry about the Star Wars rant. That's just, you know. Well, that's it for me. If you like this video, hit the like button. If you want to see more like this, please subscribe. And if you hate me, look, I'm not saying Star Wars is evil. I'm just saying I don't like the injection of SJW nonsense. That's it, okay? All right, good night. America is freedom. Freedom of speech. Freedom of religion. Freedom of enterprise. And freedom is special and rare. Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem.